0: You're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. Prairie Justice presents the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Well, howdy and welcome back to Prairie Justice. Yes, again, I'm Ranger Gord, and once again, we're going to take our fourth dip into the world of the Seven Soldiers of Victory and their adventures in the 1940s comic Leading Comics. And of course, the Seven Soldiers of Victory are comics' second super team, as it were, uh, of which Vigilante is a portion of. Uh, of course debuting uh, in 1941 uh, about a year or so after the Justice Society and of course uh, in uh, DC's continuity and earth Two continuity everywhere they are forever linked together as I said before this is going to be from leading comics number four and it's going to be a comic where they take on the sense master also known as the sixth sense Please get used to that because I have tried very, very hard through the course of this thing not to sputter too much when I say sixth sense. Yes, I just had to swallow before I did that. And you won't believe how many times that word comes up. I certainly know how. Now, just a little housekeeping on this: is how this is going to work. This is going to take place over seven chapters as we have done previously with uh, Leading Comics 2 and number 3 coverage. I will not uh, drag you down that road of in a complete 3 hour episode once again. I know that uh, it's possible and I know that I can do it but quite frankly I don't want to do it that way. So this is the first of seven I'm going to release these a few days after each other. Nominally I try to do them about three days after uh the last episode has passed so you know after about uh, two weeks or so you can get, imagine it will call, be caught up to the uh to the last and final episode uh now the only thing that might hoss that up is uh lately uh i haven't been finding that the uh my internet provider or my not my internet provider my uh podcast provider their automated tasks things hasn't seemed to work the way they should it's kind of one of those things you set the clock but did you really set the clock and it it doesn't really give you a good indication and I know they messed up on my last episode unfortunately I was watching and when it didn't come out that day well I just went out and clicked it out manually so if it doesn't come out happen it doesn't come out within three days of each other well that either means that the uh, the automated task didn't work and i haven't just caught up to it to realize because uh, i have a job folks just like you and and everybody else in the world so uh, i'll be watching it i'll try to make sure that uh, they all get out here on time secondly this will be the last of the uh seven soldiers of victory leading comics tales that will be tied into anything else. Um, what I mean by that is uh, the uh, third adventure was tied into a representation that Roy Thomas did in All-Star Squadron in 1984 and uh, Roy did it again early in 1986 uh, with this adventure but only he did it a little bit differently because there was a lot on the on the stove about that time. The crisis on infinite earths was raging and, uh, of course, that affected and impacted All-Star Squadron greatly uh, for the, about half of 1985 and a good chunk of 1986, and indeed the rest of the run. And uh, now I the to editorialize once again, uh, it, it's my stipulation that it's, the crisis killed the All-Star Squadron run. But uh, that's water under the bridge. We won't need to go there again. Now, uh, when I say he did things differently, like I said, he uh, was with of The Crisis, and just because Roy didn't seem to ever want to do anything easy, uh, he also was retelling another Golden Age story at about the same time, and indeed within the same comic. So in All-Star Squadron, let me grab it here, because I actually do have my copy from those days. All-Star Squadron 56. Uh, In 19 pages he represented a 56-page story from 1942, plus he did a chapter of the JSA story he was doing, the Shanghai Into Space storyline, so the Seven Soldiers are sharing uh, this edition with Dr. Midnight in that chapter. Uh, How am I going to deal with this? In the leading comics number three, uh, which you remember with Professor Middleton, I sort of uh, was able to absorb as much as I could from the Roy Thomas uh, representation into the chapters. It's a little different this time because Roy has done it a little differently. So what I've decided to do is just be faithful to the original. Faithful as I can, uh, <laughs> I am not doing the Wing Chinese accent. I am sorry. I refuse to do that. Uh, but otherwise, I'm using all of the dialogue and all of the headers and only inserting sort of where I need to to keep the, uh, the story flowing better and make it understood, uh, taking it from a visual to an audio medium as we are and what I will do is uh, I'll do the framing sequence here as I'm doing right now and then introduce and uh, present the drama and then after the drama I'll do a quick note synopsis I'm not going to bog you down and try, try to retell the whole story over that I'll just a few notes of things that I've observed in the story and also I will bring you up to speed with whatever Roy has done as that portion of the story, if that makes any sense. And in most portions here, Roy has only covered maybe nine pages into one page or even less. And then there's a few framing sequences because as I said, Roy had to uh, sew this into all into a quilt known as Crisis on Infinite Earths, so I'll discuss that. But I'm not going to bog you down with too much uh, crisis information. We've done that in a previous episode just a few weeks ago. So I think we at this point in time, we all know what the crisis are. And let's face it, uh, if you do remember the crisis, we're all crisis kids. And we all know what happened there. And uh, how the infinite earths became a single earth and are now infinite earths all once again. So, if that made any sense at all, I think we'll just carry on as though this was a normal comic book. So, again, this is Leading Comics number four, the fall issue. And I'm going to go to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics here and give you the the lowdown. Publisher, DC, also known as World's Best Comics Company. Address, 4080 Lexington Avenue, New York, New York. Cover date, Fall 1942. Sale date, September 11th, 1942. Not an ominous day at all. Um, I won't bother going with what's happening in the world at that point in time. I'll save that for the regular vigilante stories. Again, this is a quarterly comic. So this is going to uh, tide everybody over for the remainder of 1942, as far as Seven Soldiers are concerned. 10 cents for 64 pages. That's 64 pages with ads. Uh, this story takes 56 pages, as I said earlier. Editor Frederick Whitney Ellsworth, legendary Whitney Ellsworth. And let's talk a little bit about the cover because it's a familiar artist that has taken this on, Mort Meskin himself. Now, Mort, of course, is, as you know, the... Uh, regular pencil on the vigilante feature in action comics and we've uh, talked at length about Mort and Mort's style he's probably one of the better and more memorable artists from the golden age and he has also worked on a lot of the framing sequences and usually the vigilante chapters within leading comics as well but uh, Mort's taking a break and he's only contributing to cover this issue So we have a sort of a bell jar, a glass bell jar, if you can imagine this. Kind of a horseshoe-shaped glass jar upside down and within the head is a a green head wearing a a very dark green skull cap with a bunch of electrodes tied inside of it. So a large giant inside there. Um, Sort of predicts what... uh, brainiac might look like if you can imagine that and attacking this bell jar of course are seven superheroes shining knight is on the top ready to swing a sword into it uh star-spangled kid and stripes here taking a whack vigilante's hitting it uh about how about actually looks like he's about to Fire around into the jar. Crimson's also taking a whack, and of course, Green Arrow and Speedy are loading up bows uh, to take an aim to it. And uh, the text under says the blackout for brigands is the Laws Legionnaires. There we go, we're calling them the Laws Legionnaires, but not the Seven Soldiers. Wage total war on the Sixth Sense. Huh. In a full length action novel, Seven Steps to conquest now on this issue of leading comics we have a bit of a change in uh, in the order of how things are done prior to this Whitney Ellsworth has assigned uh, usually one or two writers to the chapters and sort of let the artists go their own way on the chapters usually getting the uh, the creators from their own strips such as Hal Sherman from Star Spangled Kid, uh, Mark Meskin from Vidge, uh, Craig Flessell from Shining Night, and so on. And then you'd have sort of a single writer to kind of do the framing sequences and just sort of a fill in to keep the flow going. I don't know what was wrong with that formula. I thought it worked not too bad, but uh, perhaps for financial reasons or scheduling or whatever, Whitney has decided to give the whole shooting match to a single writer and a single artist. Presumably an anchor and a colorist as well, but uh, you know how these Golden Age credits go. We have no idea who that might be. But the artist that we have been chosen is a name that I didn't uh, know, uh, Ed DeBrotka. So I had to do a little bit of Google Foo. And he's not terribly widely known, didn't seem to have a wiki page, but thanks to the Lambier Encyclopedia, or Lambiak Encyclopedia rather, Ed DeBrotka was born in 1917, died in 1977. And he comes from the Joe Schuster, the Siegel Schuster studio, and was one of Joe's earlier assistants working on the Superman series. And inking uh, not only Joe Schuster, but also Wayne Boring, and we know that name, and uh, lesser knowns like John Sakella and Leo Nowak. And as he said, uh, he did his penciling of his own, as we are about to see, and returned to exclusively inking in 1945. And he was a real fixture uh, with John Cickella on the Superboy series when that began and that ran all through the 1950s and he also worked on the uh, solo Lois Lane series, Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane and he also apparently drew some of the Starman chapters in JSA stories in All-Star comics and even jumped over to uh, quality comics for a little while to work on the Captain Triumph stories and I'm not too familiar with those but uh, probably something to go look at and uh, Lanbiak says his greatest achievement was the co-creator of the Toy Man along with Don Cameron first appearance action comics 1954 and seemed to also work on the Superman daily and Sunday strips as well Uh, going into uh, back to Mike's amazing world here Uh, he was active from 1941 on up to 53, uh, worked on such things as Captain Marvel, Bullet Man, uh, leading comics of course as we say, Uh, The Superman strip as we said, uh, Robot Man, uh, All-Star Squadron character there, and on Uncle Sam as well, so quite the body of work until he pretty much settled down um, to ink Superboy exclusively so he's a fair contributor to the, uh, the primal years of the uh, Superboy the uh, adventures of Superman when he was a boy strip but now I have saved a treat for you who our scripter is going to be the writer of this story in its entirety each chapter each page is going to be the incomparable Bill Finger and I just heard some people gasp out there. Who is Bill Finger, you ask? What did he work on? Well, it's easier to say what he didn't work on. But I will say what's the most significant thing he, uh, Bill Finger ever worked on was a little thing called Detective Comics 27 and a story called The Case of the Chemical Syndicate that introduced a little known character called the Bat-Man. Have you heard of that character? I believe you have. And from there, Bill Finger would work in comics from 1939 right on up to. Oh, I don't think this thing scrolls that far. And he would be the writer on comics at DC until his last uh, known. Uh, Script was for House of Secrets 141 in 1976, just an incomparable uh, talent and an incomparable talent that as many of us know, went uncredited for a long, long time. Everybody knew who he was, everybody knew what he did, but he was treated as a subcontractor, at least under the Bob Kane studio and in therein lies a rabbit hole of controversy and accusations that uh, has resulted in uh, many uh, court cases in which Bill Finger has been acknowledged as at least the co-creator of Batman working in the Bob Kane studio and of course he ghosted all sorts of stories that were uncredited until researchers started to go through the records and through financial records uh, at DC and uh, as I said just go to Mike's Amazing World if there is a place there where you can talk about creators and just go to Bill Fingers list and it's amazing besides Batman he is also responsible as the creator of Alan Scott the original Green Lantern and that is not insignificant. He is also responsible for the creation of another character that I'm very fond of, Golden Age character named Wildcat. And in all of these stories, uh, there's people like the Joker, Hugo Strange, Catwoman, Robin, that he did all phenomenal work in developing. Uh, developed so many concepts such as the Batmobile, Commissioner Gordon, and, uh, you know, just, just so many things which Bob Kane apparently just did not allow uh, Finger to uh, to capitalize on. And apparently he had some issues of his own, but uh, he needed to do this... Uh, this extremely uh, prolific body of work because he had, let's face it all we had problems uh, but uh, probably not the least to the fact is that Bob Kane would not allow complete creator credit as it should have been assigned now it's my firm belief that uh, a lot of this is Kane's fault a lot of it is DC's fault uh, for not keeping track of these sorts of things and doing all of these side deals uh, that they seem to do with creators Uh, it's very interesting that Superman Batman and Wonder Woman all seem to have completely different deals with DC and uh, Keynes of course was the most lucrative for himself he died a millionaire Bill Finger pretty much died in poverty and it's said that if he didn't have a family he would probably have been in an unmarked grave But uh, these things are documented a lot Uh, the the past few years, thanks to another creator by the name of Jerry Robinson. A lot of the truth willed out. And uh, I believe there is a uh, video that you can watch on YouTube and the name escapes me right now, but it sort of tells the whole story of how the Finger family, at least his heirs, were able to go back to DC, uh, get the credits back on where it needed to be. So at least when you, and sit down and watch some kind of a Batman production TV show film uh, big budget movie whatever uh, the creation will be says create Batman created by Bill finger and Bob Kane so at least that due has been done and uh, at least there are some financial recompenses that have been made uh, you know I guess you all can say the law is an ass and I guess you know, the thing I will always kind of say in the controversy about what Kane owed Finger yes, Finger was a subcontractor and Kane was the main contractor in his own studio. But once Kane knew the, uh, the profit margin and the, uh, the lucrative ability of Batman, I believe he had a moral obligation. And so did the ownership and management of DC and Warner Brothers as well. Uh, when that came, became a factor, uh, to at least offer that due and at the very least put that tagline on. Well, thus into the lecture. Uh, this isn't the Bob Kane Bill Finger podcast. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear one of those some point by people much more knowledgeable in the case than I am. At least for now we can revel in the facts that we have the talents of Bob Finger on this story and I think the having a single writer through this, as well as a single editor, a single artist, does allow for a bit of uh, maybe consistency and some continuity through the story. And we're going to see um, this story handled a lot differently than a lot of leading comics uh, sagas have been uh, in the past. Uh, in the past, uh, you know, the individual chapters were almost, uh, you know, direct lifts from the from the various anthology titles that the our soldier characters were appearing in, along with framing sequences on each side, sort of to tie it together. But we we'll, are we're, we're seeing a lot better, consistent storytelling. Uh, there's still that air of it, that air of an individualism. Through the stories, but uh, Bill Finger does start to tie things together, and it's uh, much greater than the sum of its parts as a story, I believe. Now, I don't know how many people out there have this uh, set of uh, books that came out, I believe, from uh, Tomorrow's Magazine or Publishers. And they were uh, edited and put together by none other than Roy Thomas, called the All-Star Companion. And if you're a fan of Justice Society, Seven Soldiers, Earth-2 in general, uh, these are a good thing to seek out. Uh, I don't imagine they're cheap anymore. Um, I bought them when the postal rates and uh, exchange rates between the United States and Canada where I live were a lot more favorable. Than they are today but there's a lot of good supplementary material and some editorial stuff by Roy and some of his recollections on his years of uh, being a fan and working with these uh, these Golden Age characters and stories um, and uh, th- there's a lot of like I said supplementals in here and a lot of different ads and things that Roy has been able to find one of the things he has in here is a dc house ad that would have appeared in other comics to advertise this particular one and it's got a uh a picture of the cover of leading comics number four and the ad says how do they think them up and it's a half page ad that came from uh superman 19 november december 1942 and it has got a couple of uh sort of a humorous character is that nobody seems to know who's drawing this but they really look like the Mutt and jeff type characters and uh, the characters are saying it's amazing how these writers and artists in the DC office can do it this time they've got a villain who battles your five favorite features with the five senses of sight hearing smell touch and taste it's the most interesting story idea in a long time and the other character says and what a story it's a complete novel length of yarn Packed with action and suspense. Don't miss it. On sale everywhere September 11th. Watch for it. Well, they have really uh, oversold this story. So, and uh, I just have one more note from Roy in here, and under the leading comics number four, uh, his personal asides, Roy says. By coincidence, at least on a conscience level, the villain, villainous living robot Ultron was at first supposedly only a mechanical assistant to the Crimson Cowl in the Avengers 54 July 1968 with the script by Roy Thomas, unquote. So uh, Roy is pretty much confessing there that he was a fan of this story and uh, used this in the uh, in the lead up to the introduction of the... Uh, the robot character of Ultron and if you don't know who Ultron is I'm not sure why you're listening to this podcast (laughs) but at any rate um, so with all that I think we'll just lead right into the story and let's get introduced to the sense master and the sixth sense When you hear me say sixth sense you might want to cover your eyes a bit. <laughs> it, it's liable to get a little unhygienic. DC Comics presents Leading Comics, number four, fall issue, autumn 1942. Blackout for brigands as the Laws Legionnaires wage total war on the sixth sense in a full-length action novel Seven Steps to Conquest. Now let's meet the five pawns of the Sense Master. Fingers, Gordon, Palati, Bloodhound, and Eagle Eye. This is the tale of five gems, each reflecting in its blazing depth A story of man's five senses, touch, taste, smell, sight, and hearing. All developed to a super degree. Super senses for super evil. Controlling them was a master sense, the sixth sense. Mental telepathy. Crime seemed triumphant but one sense was lacking, common sense. A sense to realize that evil would be downtrodden when the Seven Soldiers of Victories rove the trail to bring to justice the Sense Master. An ominous moon looks down in an incredible sight. A robot clamping down the streets of a metropolitan City a metal hand pushes open the door of a cheap bar whose sole customers are hoodlums and thugs hey ah. that same metal hand arcs down crashes heavily and then snatches up the insensible piano player the unconscious man is flung into a truck where three previous victims also lie. Later, another bar, where a hoodlum entertains friends with a card tricks. Now I'll make the ace of spades disappear. Hey, what's the matter with you? Look! (laughs)
1: Look! One slugs ricochet
0: from the metal body as the mysterious robot seizes his fifth victim. He's got fingers. It's a robot like they head at the World's
1: Fair. At that moment high in the sky astride of wing
0: steed is another figure sheathed in metal. The Shining
1: Knight. Sounds. Gunfire. And do my eyes play tricks or do I truly see a metal man below? By St. George. Now that metal finger does drive that truck like any normal man. Me twould be best to follow and learn more of these strange doings.
0: Sometime after, the truck enters the garage of a house that looms sinisterly over the waterfront. That house squats there like some evil toad. Methinks danger lacks within its moldy walls. Warily, the Shining Knight pads softly into the garage, but a heavy metal fist crashes viciously against his jaw, and he knows no more. Sometime later, bitter wakening comes.
1: Yeah, in sooth, but my head aches badly.
0: But what's this I see? The five captives are all strapped to operating tables. Hey, what are all you mugs doing here? All I know is some metal guy grabbed me. Same here. Somebody's gonna be sorry. Then two voices are heard.
1: Dr. Brett, either you carry out my wishes or I'll kill you where you stand.
0: All right, but I never expected to use my experimental research for criminal purposes. Hey Doc, what are you going to do to us? What are you? Don't worry. It won't hurt. Please remember I'm being forced to do this. Hours pass as the Shining Knight watches the scientist operate on the men. Then, the next morning...
1: See? I feel swell. No after effects.
0: Maybe the duck didn't operate at all? Hey guys, look. It's the Shining Knight. Suddenly, everyone stops in dead silence to stare at the piano player. What? What's the matter with me? I hear things. Every little sound. What's that noise? Sounds like horse's hooves. It's that beetle. I can hear its feet pounding against the floor. And me. I can see that warehouse across the river as if I was standing next to it.
1: <laughs> there. I can smell it now. You're right. It even tastes like dust. I don't know why, but I can taste the air.
0: And I can touch the air. Roll it over my fingertips. It feels like boulders. Suddenly, the entire wall slides back and two incredible figures loom into view.
1: Perhaps, gentlemen, I can explain. You've heard of the five senses. Sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell. Well, each of you has had a sensation sharpened to the nth degree by Dr. Brett's hormone extract.
0: No wonder I could hear that beetle's footsteps. Well, you, you look like the leader here. What's the idea of this? Anyway, come on, talk.
1: I lack all the senses you have in abundance. My specially constructed robot serves as my eyes, ears, and mouth. And this breathing glass dome it's like an iron lung it's what keeps me alive Now I've investigated you all you need money gentlemen if you uh, steal 5 jewels for me I will reward you with more money than the jewels are worth
0: How come watch the catch
1: Here are your instructions in full you Man of touch will steal from Donald Coty.
0: Seemingly disregarded, the Shining Knight listens as the metallic tones of the robot name five people.
1: And you, man of hearing, will steal from Miss Alice Howard. Follow orders and you will all be rich. You all remember Dr. Brett? That man was a stupid sentimentalist. He tried to double-cross me by telling the police. He became my enemy, profit by his experience. Do not become my enemy, or you will all die. Like this. Goodbye, shining knight, and here is your precious sword. Precious good, it will do you now. Uh, uh. A similar fate awaits those who double-cross me. Now get started and bring back those jewels.
0: Meanwhile, the Shining Knight flounders helplessly on the river bottom. My jousting days are over, but
1: wait if I can but sever my bonds with my sword. Once again, I owe my life to the blade made magic
0: sharp by Merlin. Swimming with the tide, a shining figure rises from the river like some eerie sea creature. Methinks it's time for the summoning of my comrades. We've work to do. Sir Justin raises a call to arms and seven modern knights of the round table answer The Green Arrow and Speedy in their fleet, Aeroplane. The Vigilante on his mechanical bronco, The Star-Spangled Kid and Stripesy in their meteor-pacing Star Rocket Racer. And with the arrival of the Crimson Avenger, the conclave of the Seven Soldiers of Victory is complete. And so I've told you all I know. Already these five men are about that evil business. If this murderous Sixth Sense fellow has already killed Dr. Brett, he'll stop but nothing. The owners of these gems are in great danger. I vote we go after these five men, stop them, and then come back for their boss. Exactly. The Sense Master will keep. Partners, pick the man you're going after, and let's ride. Come on, man, let's knock some sense into the five senses. Well, we're back, and uh, first I'll start with a few comments and a few notes that I have on the story itself. Try not to get too complicated here. Um, The splash page starts, interestingly enough, introducing our villains, and the seven soldiers actually have their backs to us. So that's sort of an interesting technique. Uh, you remember Bill Finger is the guy that introduces some of Batman's most interesting villains. And I'm not going to say that any of these villains are on that level. But that is sort of one thing that, um, that Finger does. He knows how to flesh out what your heroes need to be fighting. So we get uh, our five henchmen, for lack of a better name, operatives. Let's, let's use that word and they're all have their profiles they just normally look like uh, fedora gangster types Uh, but they do have very distinctive looks and as we're going to hear they're going to have distinctive personalities as well so they're not bad villains Um, they're just not going to be anything you're going to be sustaining Um, don't look for an eagle eye film from DC anytime soon so the five villains are against the jewel or the gem that they're going to capture. So we have Mickey Gordon. We have Fingers. We have Pilati, And by the way, I'm obviously this, uh, this gentleman who's going to have the, uh, the sense of taste is supposed to be known as Palate because he's a large portly man. I just thought Pilati was a little bit more of an interesting name. Uh, He kind of gave me a little bit of a vibe of uh, Mr. Ferrari from Casablanca, played by Sidney Greenstreet. There's the bloodhound, who's actually got a very profound nose, and eagle eye. And uh, being communicated in this splash page is the sense master or the, here we go again, sixth sense. And it appears that uh, he's communicating to them telepathically. And he sort of looks like uh, Jean-Luc Picard wearing a, uh, a sort of a rubber tuning, not a rubber, a metal tuning fork on his head with antennas. And there's lightning bolts going outside to simplify, I guess, the telepathic communications going out to his operatives. And we begin with a robot clanking down the street. Now, if you're used to seeing uh, Star Wars and look what droids look like, you'll be disappointed by this robot, but I'm going to address that in a minute. Uh, The robot, of course, kidnaps Mickey Gordon, then he goes to kidnap uh, Fingers. And one of the, the goons in the bar where Fingers is kidnapped from says this this is very telling. He's got fingers. It's a robot, like they had at the World's Fair. Now, we're here. It's a 1942 comic. The World's Fair he's talking about is the 1939-1940 World's Fair, which was held, uh, I want to say, Flushing Meadows, New York. And if you're familiar at all with All-Star Squadron, you know that because that will be the future headquarters of the All-Star Squadron for the duration of the war. In uh, two pavilion buildings known as the Trilon and the Parasphere, and what the goon is talking about here with the robot was an actual exhibit that was seen at the World's Fair called Electro. No uh, relation to the Spider-Man villain, although I'm sure that uh, I'm sure Stanley brought that name forth in his latent memory in the 1960s. And it was built by the Westinghouse Electric Corporation in Mansfield, Ohio. And it was built around 37. completed in 1938. It was seven feet tall, weighed 265 pounds, humanoid in appearance, but it just sort of looked like you, you would imagine a robot in 1938 would look like. Very large, very clanky. He could speak about 700 w- words using a record player inside of him. He could smoke cigarettes. That's a so useful uh, use of a futuristic robot. He could blow up b- balloons, and he could move his head and arms. And of so course, the body had the steel gears, cams, and motors, and covered by an aluminum skin, which actually, when you see him, looks more copper, copperish in color, and had photoelectric eyes that could distinguish between a red and a green light. He was on exhibit at the 39 World's Fair. And again, 1940, and even had a little mascot with him, Sparko, a little robot dog that bark, sit and beg to humans. Um, he actually did. Now, now, if you know the All-Star Squadron story, you'll probably remember him. Um, he re- At some point, he rebelled against the All-Star Squadron when they went into the facility. I believe he was under the control of the villain Bra- Brainwave at the time. And the squadron uh, rewired him to become their butler at the headquarters of the Trilon and Perisphere. And they renamed him Gernsback. This was a little nod uh, Roy Thomas used towards the science fiction writer Hugo Gernsback, um, who I believe Roy had some affiliation with or at least a long-time admiration of. By the way, if you're a science fiction fan, The Hugos is also named after Hugo Gernsback. Now, in real life, the Electro toured North America in 1950, uh, went to California, was used in, in movies, a movie called Sex Kittens Go to College. And here's an interesting one. they were Electro and Sparko were used as minor characters in a novel co- called mr. Adam in 1969 written by a man named Theodore Pratt no relation to Al Pratt I don't think and I believe he was in a video with the meat beat manifesto called a, a song called the original control I haven't seen that video yet I'm just sort of getting my Wikipedia information according to wikipedia here is the still on display at the mansfield memorial museum in ohio and that a replica has been exhibited at the henry ford museum in dearborn michigan now i was shocked a few years ago when my wife and i went to pittsburgh we were taking a river cruise vacation down the ohio river and uh, we i decided to go into the uh, the Heinz Center, uh, the Heinz Center, of course, is sort of dedicated and uh, produced by the family of the, the Heinz uh, ketchup company, Heinz 57 and all that. And they have a pretty good history floor and one day, at one point, I walked around the corner and what was looking at me, but Gerns back from All-Star Squadron. Now my sighting of Lectra was also in 2013, so I don't know if this was the original or if this was the Henry Ford replica. But at any rate, I did get to see it. I snapped a picture of it, and I, I really believe it's the replica from Henry Ford. I don't think the uh, the original tours at all. But anyway, just a little aside, and it's just sort of interesting that uh, Bill Finger uh had it obviously saw uh the electro at the 39 world's fair and uh 40 years later it was still inspiring roy thomas enough to to be use that uh little bit of trivia from the past now this uh, introduction is following sort of the formula that the seven soldiers stories had had uh, started with from the beginning uh, you have something very ominous uh, appears several agents are contacted by a master villain the master villain gathers these agents tells them what their mission is and at some point one of the soldiers just happens to stumble along the plot and get involved and part of this plot of course involves uh, the sense master also bringing in a surgeon by the name of doctor brett who performs what he calls hormone surgery? I don't know what kind of hormone surgery was available in the 1940s, or if how much we even knew about hormones at that point in time. Uh, but it must have been in the in the zeitgeist somewhere, because Finger has uh, Doctor Brett enhance the five one of the five senses in each of these characters. And once they got, get, get out of the uh, surgery, each, of course, realizes their enhanced sense. And in some ways, it's sort of like a, a super hearing or super smell that you might associate with characters like Superman, who always like to uh, talk about their hypersenses. So far, uh, Finger did not see fit to give any of them super ventriloquism. And as I said, uh, one of the soldiers usually stumbles upon this. Uh, this plot gets into uh, the requisite death trap, uh, escapes, and uh, brings in the rest of the soldiers into the story. And that thus, everyone is sent out on their individual missions. Now, in past soldier stories, we've been sort of been James Bonding around America and around the world as the characters go to, you know, different locales. Uh, sometimes they are actual locales and sometimes they are euphemistic type places. I think of uh, two that pop into my head, a Shining Knight going to an Alaska, or the Crimson Avenger going to the Twin Cities in Minnesota, Vigilante going to Hollywood and so on. In, hit, in this, the, uh, the soldiers are dispatched and they're not going to be given any specific name. They're just going to uh, be meeting up with various characters who are the victims of uh, the Sense Master's uh, plot. One thing I, I forgot to mention, I was going to. Uh, the Sense Master seems to be communicating with the Sixth Sense. Hear that word again. And of course, that is telepathy. So uh, we believe that uh, the sense master at least has his, uh, his own sort of enhanced sense. And it appears that uh, this is how he's using it to communicate not only with his own operatives, but some sort of sub-operatives that he has planted around the, uh, the area as well. It's never really explained how this telepathy works and let's explain it do we even know how telepathy works we just assume it's some sort of electrical impulse that allows uh, our character our bell jar brainiac to put thoughts into the minds and to control his operatives as they go after these uh, five gems that the soldiers hopefully will be foiling the plot to recover Now, so far I've neglected to tell you where this uh, story has been reprinted, and it has been reprinted in DC Archives editions, uh, the Seven Soldiers of Victory Archive, Volume 1, Hardcover, uh, published in 2005, which also, of course, gives us uh, leading comics 1, 2, and 3 as well. Good luck in trying to find these. I believe they are out in the aftermarket on things like A-Books, but they are getting very, very pricey. And I've pretty much given up uh, my attempts to ever get one unless I am actually traveling in the United States because between exchange and uh, postal rates now, it's pretty much prohibitive for me to ever have those uh, on my shelf. But those of you with access in the United States to good bookstores or possibly the, uh, the Ollie's uh, link that I keep hearing about, uh, have on you. Uh, where I am at, uh, even if I was across the border in Montana, I'd be a long way away from an Ollie's. I've checked and they don't seem to have any franchises in the western or northwest United States that, or even in Hawaii that I can see. However, in Roy Thomas's mission to sort of plunk uh, the Golden Age characters into a, the narrative of his All-Star Squadron story, as I said earlier, this has been had a... Uh, I'm trying to think of the proper word that he uses, but it's a representation... Uh, he plopped into all-star squadron 56 special issue seven soldiers of victory and this is going to be of course scripted by roy thomas a free adaptation that's the word i'm trying to think of it's going to be artistic chores are going to be by mike clark and inked by mike harris and this came out um, it's got an april 86 cover date as i remember i think i purchased it in January of 86 possibly February and of course uh, as a, this will be a free adaptation and what I'm going to do in all of these seven stories I'm just going to basically tell you how Roy adapted this the story as we go through it and on some at some points in time it's only going to be a few pages now as we know the uh, Roy is plopping this into the all-star squadrons era of where we're at it right now is around oh i want to say april may of 1942 and of course the crisis is on so when we first open the page uh we have the shining knight riding winged victory and of course because it's a crisis tie-in we have to have red skies so Shining Knight goes into the skies and we see the, the uh, story again. We see Mickey Gordon plunking the piano away and the robot coming through. And we see a much more interesting robot uh, for the times than we did with the, uh, the Electro Gernsback version from uh, the 1942 story. Uh, as we followed the narrative here's one thing that Roy has inserted as to where we are in this story we are apparently and Roy has just plucked this out of the air this isn't from the Bill Finger script we are in Philadelphia and uh, Philadelphia Pennsylvania so there you go hi Dave McIlvaney and all my friends in Pennsylvania down at the waterfront Roy continues to uh, introduce us to Dr. Brett and we once again see the operation that the operatives go through and virtually all the scenes and dialogue that we have uh, heard in the drama. So once the Shining Knight uh, has gotten out of his death trap, the operatives have been sent onto their various missions and which leads... Sir Justin to call in the seven soldiers of victory who are informed that the owners of these gems are in terrible peril and Star Spangled Kid makes our requisite crisis tie-in was let's go stop those five hoods first and then go after their boss red skies or not now just for comparison's sakes Roy has told the six page Bill Finger story in eight pages But don't get used to that. Things are going to get compressed a heck of a lot after this. Now, normally, I would be ready to tell you that we're going to end right here. Our first chapter, and that we'll be back with our second chapter in a few days' time as the Crimson Avenger goes after Mickey Gordon, the man with super hearing. But I thought since we're uh, covering this All-Star Squadron story as well, that I'd go to the letters page, And uh, get a little bit of uh, Roy's story behind the story, as it were, as to how he came to do this uh, sort of a free adaptation. That was one of the great things about All-Star Squadron. Now you can uh, make all of the uh, comments you want about editors being their own editor on stories. And Roy Thomas was pretty much uh, the designated Earth-2 editor at DC at this point in time in the 1980s. But the one thing I did like about Roy, and he did this in Invaders as well, he liked to bring you along and sort of uh, give you a little bit of commentary. He realized that we all had a bit of an investment in this narrative, this ongoing narrative. And uh, also he realized that not everybody had the access that he did To 1940s comics and they certainly uh, didn't have it in the 1980s the way we might have now a few fingertips we can pretty much read anything we want through various methods and omnibuses on the shelf but that stuff didn't exist in the 1980s so Roy always wanted to sort of bring you along uh, into his frame of thinking so he starts out here on the letters page Uh, Afraid this issue's letter section got squeezed out by the combination of an extra page or so of story plus the legally required ownership statement. By the way, that's the little column that tells you in very fine print what the legal status of this magazine is. And I guess this is for postal purposes and also uh, just sort of uh, give everybody a, a sense of, you know, where the comic book business is at this point in time. And uh, I think I'll come back to this after I finish Roy's uh, story. At any rate, um, first off, I hope you enjoyed this issue's offbeat retelling of the Seven Soldiers of Victory story, which originally appeared in Leading Comics number 4 in 1942. We'd already experimented with a reworking of number 3's tale, Dr. Doomy, back in issue 29, as you recall. And despite the necessity of squeezing in the red skies of the recently ended crisis on Infinite Earths, we felt the fourth SSOV adventure fit in nicely at this point. And so Roy basically completes this explanation by telling you that in the next issue, you'll see the the, the interdimensional exploits of Starman, the Atom, and Wonder Woman, sort of as a continuation of the Shanghai into space storyline, which... uh, we are seeing this issue as represented by dr midnight and roy also goes on to talk about the companion mag's secret origins which will be starting here at this point in 1986 with the origin of the golden age superman as drawn by uh wayne boring and jerry ordway so uh yeah secret origins just so you know was a uh, a double length comic although it only started out as single length that ran for 50 issues through the late 1980s and we did see a few soldiers in that uh that is that rendition we saw star-spangled kid and C and I believe we saw a Green Arrow retelling, but at that point in time, Green Arrow's a little bit different. And sort of that was, the purpose of that was to tell not only Golden Age secret origins, but also origins of the other characters in DC as they were evolving um, with the whole post-crisis situation. Uh, we also will see Shining Knight as the origin of Shining Knight in All-Star Squadron. Before it ends, sort of as a companion piece to get Secret Origins off the ground. And unfortunately, we never saw the origin of Vigilante in that, uh, that comic book. Now, if you want to hear representations uh, or commentaries on that entire series, go to the Fire and Net- Water Network and look for the Secret Origins podcast which ryan daly spent several years painstakingly going through those books and he just did a marvelous job as well and uh, this was before long before my podcasting career but uh, i looked forward to every monday morning to hearing ryan's uh, secret origins rendition and he had some great guests on at that point as well and i believe i wrote a a note to ryan at one point goes: wouldn't have been great to have seen a secret origins of the vigilante done by the artist then alive still mr gray morrow and ryan agreed that that would have been awesome it's it's too bad that the golden age origins uh, sort of petered out about uh, maybe half to third of the way through that run now i promised you a little something about this ownership statement and i see this great little note it says total number of copies called the net press run. Average number of copies each issue, that's of All Star Squadron during the preceding 12 months, and that would be the period of, I guess, all of 1995. Each issue of All Star Squadron was printed 195,291 copies. That's an incredible circulation. I don't know what circulation on the average comic is today, uh, given the digital downloads and such, but I'll tell you, if they were getting 130,000 copies uh, uh, being sold of any comic today, DC wouldn't, Warner Brothers wouldn't be worried about trying to sell these IPs to be movies. They'd be making a good business right in the comic books alone. So that's sort of where we have kind of... uh, gone forth and more people know our characters and that's good but unfortunately they're not coming to the comic book industry to read about them. But they are reading about them in back issues which doesn't do DC a lot of good, but it does us as a fandom as well, good as well. So I'm going to drop this right here because this was supposed to be a shorter episode and we are going to go back to seeing the Crimson Avenger, in a few days time and uh, like as i said we'll try to do about every three days a chapter until we complete this seven soldiers of victory seven part Megasode. hey i just made a word bye everybody (laughs) (laughs)
1: dum-pum-pum <laughs> <laughs>